following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Genesis chapter 12 this morning. That's where we're going to be. Genesis 12. This is a good word for us this morning. Um, it's a, a word of, of challenge. It's a word of encouragement. Um, it is a crazy story. Um, I've told you that in the book of Genesis, we're going to come across weird things. This is, this is more of a, of a challenging moment, right? That happens in Abram's life. Uh, you ever been discouraged about something going on in your life? Right. Maybe maybe this morning or last week you looked at the weather report and you instantly got discouraged. Right. I mean, it's happened to me yesterday. I mean, we're out playing. I'm coaching two games and then got to go watch my oh, my youngest son play last night up in Kaiser. And uh, by the way, you have no excuses for staying awake today. I got home at one o'clock last night in the morning. I'm going to preach by not falling asleep. Right. And you're going to stay awake while I'm preaching. OK, so if somebody is, is falling asleep, you say you got no excuses, man. I mean, right. And yesterday, just a beautiful day, and looked at my weather app and wish I hadn't. I mean, it's just like, what is going to happen next, right? We're snow possibly on a Wednesday. I mean, come on, what are we doing, right? I mean, right? I know. So, I mean, discouragement happens, right? I mean, friends that you thought were friends, but they're not. A job that you thought was the answer to your financial needs doesn't work out. The house that you waited so long to build or buy is suddenly like Tom Hanks's movie, The Money Pit. Anybody seen that movie? Right. I mean, it's like, oh my word, what did we get into here? Right. I did not know there was mold there. Right. The spouse that you've waited so long to meet never comes along. The baby that you can't wait to have is never conceived or never brought to full term. I mean, these are, these are heartaches. And in moments of discouragement and disillusionment, isn't it hard to not get out ahead of God and kind of in a sense, make your own plans and your own ideas and do what you think might be best, making snap decisions Rather than patiently just consulting God and asking God, it's really easy to do. It's easy to do. Sometimes life throws us curveballs that we're not expecting, and it's discouraging and tempting to try to make something happen without consulting God. But here's another question that I have for you, though. Have you ever struggled at times with being judgmental or critical about other people's decisions? Like, why would they do that? What a boneheaded move, right? You see somebody take a particular stand about a moral issue and you get critical of them. Maybe it's an adult child or a friend that makes a decision about a job, a vacation, a life-altering decision that you disagree with, and you find yourself judging their motives, questioning their wisdom, and just inserting your opinion of what you think God says. It's easy to become self-righteous about decisions that others are making with their own lives and, to be honest with you, completely miss what God might be doing. It's easy to do. Well, today, we're going to learn about some of these things in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. And here's what I, what I hope we're going to learn. It's, it's a really simple statement. And sorry we don't have an outline. Uh, Perry left before we could get an outline out to him, so this just has... You gotta write today, sorry. I know it's dark. Uh, you'll figure it out, right? Um, I trust you. I'm gonna try to talk slowly so you can get this. The best of men are men at best. But God is always faithful to his promise. The best of men are men at best. And some of you who know Alistair Begg, you can hear him in this. God is always faithful to his promise. So please stand with me. Let's read Genesis 12, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, 
So Moses went down to Egypt to so, or Abram went down to, to Egypt, sorry. Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Father, would you would you open our eyes to the truths that are found in this? And would you help us to see, above all things, would you help us to see your faithfulness? Your faithfulness to your people, even when we're not at our best. And your faithfulness to your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we jump back into Genesis today, let's just remember where we were two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, Luis did a fantastic job of introducing us to this man named Abram. At the beginning of chapter 12 in Genesis, God promised Abram that he would make him a great nation. He would bless him. He would make his name great. Anybody who blessed Abram, God would bless. Anybody who cursed Abram, God would curse. And Abram believed and trusted in this promise with all of his heart to such a degree that he left all that he had known. There's many indications that Abram left all the riches behind of his father's house, left his homeland, left his extended family behind, left his heritage to go to the land and the place that God had promised to give him. He took his wife and his nephew Lot, who we're going to learn more about later, to the famous land of the Canaanites, which God had promised to give him. But when he got there, he bowed down and worshiped God and thanked God for his promise and faithfulness to him. That's where we are. Now, if you're reading the book of Genesis, there's something very important you've got to see about the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is about the beginnings of the world and about God dealing with mankind generally. How God deals with all of mankind and how God sees all of mankind and the purposes for which God made mankind and why he made creation. That's why we've seen, you know, gender roles as an example and gender in the Bible. We've seen all of that already. We've seen male and female made in God's image. We've seen, haven't we already, work being given to man. We've seen roles. We've seen sin enter the world. We've seen all of how God deals with man generally. And Genesis 1 through 11 is pointing ahead to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But Genesis 12, 1 through 3 that I just referenced is a huge turning point in the book of Genesis and, for that matter, the rest of the Bible. Rather than generally dealing with all mankind, we will begin to see from Genesis 12, 1 through 3, how God will bless all nations of the world through the people of faith who are children of this man, Abram. So in a, in a very real way, we could say this. Genesis 1 through 11 points to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then the rest of the Bible 
And the rest of Genesis shows how Genesis 1, 12, 1 through 3 is fulfilled. It is a massive turning point in the Bible. That's what's happening. That's where we are in the story. Now, that gets us to our first point, which is the test and the response. And we're going to see this in verse 10. Now, remember, again, this text is coming directly on the heels of the Lord's promise to Abram. And Abram's faithful obedience to God and his worship of the Lord, his willingness to leave all that he had behind and go to follow this God who showed up to him and promised him these wonderful truths. It's also coming on the heels of God telling him that he would give him the land of the Canaanites and Abram's beginning to settle down in this land. Now, you would think at that point of the story, with this great promise hanging over him, this moment of God saying, you are the father of this great nation, you would think that God would give him olive trees, he'd give him a vineyard, he would give him an abundance of sheep and oxen, maybe a house that was the envy of the ancient world. But what do you find in verse 10? You find a famine in the land. A famine. A famine hit, a test. So here's the great man of faith, Abram. We call him Father Abraham. Receiving this great word from God, beginning to settle in to God's promise, and a famine hits. I mean, can you relate? I I can. I can relate every Monday morning. Every Monday. My day off. I come off the spiritual high of Sunday, and bam, I'm hit in the face of Mondays. Thinking of all the things I wish I would have said differently, things I should have done differently, the way I should have brought this text to bear or that to bear, and just feeling the condemnation of Mondays. A buddy of mine in pastoral ministry calls it post-ministry syndrome. Ladies, you'll understand, PMS. (laughs) Great high, great low. Great high and great test. Mark Dever says, it's a cycle of every Christian in every church. Glory and suffering. Glory and suffering. Glory and suffering. This is true of every Christian. Now, sadly, in the American West and in the Western world, there's a theology among Christians, and we could just call it, you know where I'm coming from, hashtag blessed, where nothing bad hits Christians. And if it does, it's immediately from the devil. There's no challenge, no hardship. All is good. Plenty of money, plenty of food, plenty of health, plenty of wealth. But here's a question for you. What do you see in the father of your faith? A famine in the land. Directly after receiving the promise of God and worshiping the living God, settling in to where God would have him, There's a famine. There's no feast. There's a famine. Now, what's intriguing is Abram's response. We're told that he goes to Egypt to sojourn there. That word sojourn means that he knows he's not going to be there a long time. He's, He's going to just get in there, get some food possibly, and get out. But I want you to notice them. Do you notice anything that's missing? Do you see anything missing in this great man of faith? Notice there's no mention of God. There's no mention of consulting God. No mention of prayer. No, no mention of seeking God of for direction or provision. Nope. A test happens. And see if you don't relate to this. Abram, the man of blessing, does what he thinks is best. Ligon Duncan, in his sermon on this on this text, said this. The Lord is testing Abram's faith and faithfulness. And this, verse 10, is setting the stage for the rest of the event as it unfolds in verses 11 through 20. I mean, just a simple thing. Famine hits and he goes to Egypt. No consulting of God. I mean, again, can you, can you relate to this? I mean, friends, we're told in... 
the book of James, that tests and trials of various kinds will come into our lives. It, it will happen. It's not a matter of, of if, it's a matter of when. And if God tested our father of faith, Abram, <clears throat> we can rest assured that God will as well test our faith. Trials, hardships, pain, and turmoil are all part of living in a Genesis 3 world. Loneliness, barrenness, death, disease, poverty, joblessness are all part of life. And listen, people of faith are not immune from experiencing any of these things. Being a person of faith does not make you avoid hardship and suffering. Better yet, I actually think they make you a a sharper target so that God, through you, would reveal to the rest of the world how a person of faith responds to the same trial they're going through. But it's what we do when this stuff hits that matters. Abram did what he thought was best without consulting God. Abram seems to, to put it in my terminology, seems to have gone out ahead of God and just took matters into his own hands. And it's really easy to do. I'm sure all he thought was, there's food in Egypt. They've got plenty. We don't have any. I'll take my family there. But here's the challenge. Without consulting God, it doesn't seem to be done in faith. Now, the point is, nothing wrong potentially with going to Egypt. Without consulting God, it's not done in faith. And listen, in our lives, it can be as simple as little things. You don't think you can find a spouse? So you get out ahead of God without consulting God. And you begin to make decisions about where you might land or what you might do, or you begin to compromise your standards to settle. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with desiring a spouse. Nothing wrong with moving. Nothing wrong with finding a new job. Nothing wrong with going to... You find it with more prime candidates. Nothing wrong with that. But did you consult God? Was faith a part of this equation? Maybe for some of you, you can't conceive and you have had problems having children. It's painful. I've talked to many of you. It aches your soul. Many of you have gone through miscarriages over and over and over. And it just, it's painful. And Jill and I have gone through the same and it hurts. And you immediately then consider alternate plans to conception. Nothing wrong with that. But you do it without consulting God. We had this discussion the other night in our elder deacon meeting about this potential need. We need a new building. Everybody needs to know that. This this is wonderful. It cannot be our home. We, we can't be here long term. And we need a new building. We need a new space. But we're not going to do that without consulting God. You see the point. Abram's response to the test was to trust his own wisdom rather than consulting God. And as we're going to see, it put him in a serious bind. And that leads to the, to the second point, which is the danger and the hard decision. You'll see this in verses 11 through 16. Now, it's at this point, Abram is faced with some serious, very serious ethical spiritual, cultural, and relational decisions. So let's look first at the danger. Let's look first at what what is the danger issue. Notice verses 11 and 12 with me that tell us that they, just as they were about to enter Egypt, he knew that because his wife was beautiful, the Egyptians would take her and they would kill him to get her. Now there's a few things about this we've got to understand and we got to learn first. First, you've really got to love the fact that Abram sees his wife as beautiful. I just think that's fantastic. What a good dude. I mean, I think this is, I mean, I love that she is lovely in his eyes. And you've got to love that. I tell my wife often, baby, when we walk in the room, you're the only one in living color. Everybody else is in black and white, but you are in living color. And in the ancient world, because people live longer than us, they're about double the time or more, her 65 years of age would be the equivalent of being in her young to mid-30s. 
So this created a problem. She was incredibly beautiful. And the Egyptians had a law, an odd law, that if you were a sojourner in their land, you came to visit, and an Egyptian saw your wife and liked her, he could take her by force without any repercussions. It seems odd, but it's true. That's one danger. But there's another danger here that's lingering over the top of all of this. It's that Abram was the recipient of God's promise. Remember Genesis 12? And if Abram dies, what happens to the promise? Can you feel the dilemma he's under? He's got this challenge on his hand. It's not an easy one. Now, let's be honest. It seems to that he's put himself in this situation without consulting God. And he's between a rock and a hard place. He's in a a really true catch-22 moment. So what does he do? Well, look at verse 13. And ladies, just think if you like this dude or not, right? I mean, he tells his wife to tell the Egyptians that she's his sister. Okay, what? (laughs) What? I mean, for real? Right? And before you go, you look at your husband and say, you do that. We, hey, we got major, major issues here. Right? Before we go just crazy over this, just think through this with me for a moment. Oddly enough, this is a half truth. Sarai was Abram's half sister. Actually, his father's daughter. Now, before you throw up in your mouth, right? I mean, right? I mean, you're like, <laughs> you know. I suddenly just like started itching everywhere, you know, like, right? I mean, what is happening? There was an odd law and an odd thing in Abram's home nation in that area of ancient Middle East that a wife-sister relationship was held in very high honor to such a degree that Derek Kidner wrote this, and I found this fascinating. A husband would even legally adopt his wife as sister to increase his authority and the status of the marriage. In the in our world, this is weird, strange, incestuous. Dude's going to jail, right? I mean, right? But in Abram's world, totally legal, and not only that, even sought after. Half truth. Secondly, in the ancient East, there was a rule called the a law called the Brother Rule. Brother Rule, just this is. I'm, I'm giving it to you in English so you can understand it a little bit. And as Paul would say, speaking to you in human terms, right? I mean, whatever that is. How does Paul speak in human terms? Not, I don't want to get into it. All right. This law stated, if there's no father around the woman, the brother became the guardian, and he was the one who was the negotiator for potential suitors to purchase his sister as a wife. Now, what's intriguing is, In Abram's shrewd mind, this half-truth declaration would save him some time, right? He wouldn't die. It would buy him time, save his life, to figure some things out as they navigated through Egypt to get food. And then once they navigated through that, then they could just get out a dodge and be okay. He would have negotiated with whoever wants his sister way before ever giving her away, knowing he could buy some time, and then it would just save his life in the process, and then when they got enough food, they can go back to the land of Canaan and be fine. And then finally, notice his motivation in this. And this is where it begins to get crazy. Notice what he says. That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. You can feel Abraham's detention here. On the one hand, this looks remarkably selfish, very myopic. I mean, I'm my, the first question I ask when I'm like, dude, what about your wife? Are you abdicating? Is he abdicating his role as protector of his wife? Is he, is he hiding behind Sarah's skirt? But there's another problem. He's trying to protect the promise that God gave him. If he's not around, there's no fulfillment to the promise. And he's not thinking as well, right? If she's not around, there's no fulfillment to the promise because he hasn't heard that yet. So how is he to faithfully protect God's promise 
And his choice is just by a subtle, shrewd deception. We would call them little white lies. Now, let me say here what I said at the beginning. Do you see how easy it is to judge somebody else's decision without knowing all the facts? It's easy to be critical of Abram's decision from our historical, and let's be honest, our very comfortable point of view. I mean, y'all are sitting in nice, cozy seats in an air-conditioned environment. Maybe air-conditioned. Comfortable. But we cannot, I don't think we can appreciate the immense pressure he's feeling. The obligation to God's promise that God, God gave me this promise. I've got to protect this promise. The desire to protect himself and he thinks this is the plan to protect his wife as well. It's why we've got to be very careful to not throw shade on Abram and let's be honest, on others who make decisions that we may not agree with without knowing all the facts, all the pressures, and not being in their shoes. Now, Abram's plan potentially would have worked if not for one thing, Pharaoh. Notice verse, verses 14 through 16. Abram's wife was so beautiful that the men saw her and told Pharaoh about her. And Pharaoh decided to take her. What's intriguing is, remember the law of negotiation? With the king of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, there is no negotiation. What he does is he says, go get her for me. Here's the price that's fair and bring her back. There's no negotiation. Abram's plan takes a severe hit. He thought he could protect God's promise. He could protect himself, potentially protect his wife, but he did not factor in Pharaoh. All Pharaoh has to do is offer the half-brother Abram whatever he thought was fair, whatever Pharaoh thought was fair. Give it to him, which happens in verse 16, and take, Sar- take Sarai as his wife. And Abram, we're told, is treated well, well by, by Pharaoh because of Sarai, but he loses his wife to the king's harem. Now, just, just for a moment here, just draw some things out of this with me. I mean, this, this is, can you feel the tension in this? Friends, life is made up of complex, challenging choices. And sometimes danger lurks in those moments, listen, that we don't even see. Yet here's the father of faith making a decision that makes him incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. But at the cost of losing his wife to Pharaoh's harem. I mean, can you imagine the angst that that Abram is feeling at this moment? Yes, he's got all the, listen, the female donkeys that are listed in the text. That's the equivalent of somebody giving you a Mercedes today. It's the best ride available. Royalty rode upon that. And life is like this. Hard, challenging choices. And you can almost hear in this moment Jesus' words when he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the world yet loses his soul? I just, I just hear in this, what will it gain, profit a man, if he gains more wealth, but he loses his kids to the world? What will it profit a man if he gains the promotion, but yet loses his wife? Life is made up of complex, challenging choices. And for the child of God, those decisions cannot be made without consulting God. Remember, Abram is in this predicament because when the test of famine came, it just seems so sad. It's one verse, so subtle. He did not consult the Lord. And that moment, verse 10, that famine moment set the stage for this moment. And do you notice something else in this moment? 
Is there any mention of God? He does it again. When danger rises or pressure hits, it is easy or discouragement or disillusionment. It's easy to devise our own plan to deal with it without consulting God or considering the consequences. Listen, Abram believed that he must protect God's promise. And when it was threatened, he devised a plan to protect it. But he didn't think about Pharaoh. Are you aware, brothers and sisters, the metaphorical Pharaohs in our lives come out of nowhere when we devise our own plans without consulting God in faith? Danger comes. And we deceive. Someone confronts us about something we've said or done, and we lie out of fear of what honesty might cost us. But that stuff always comes around to bite us, and Pharaoh shows up. Abram's plan seems not to have been conceived in faith, but rather by his background, his shrewdness, his sharp mind, his business acumen rather than consulting God in faith. So here's Abram in the land of Egypt, has all the possessions he could possibly want, yet his wife is now in the possession of Pharaoh. Let's see what happens next in verses 17 through 20, which is our last point this morning, the protection of God. In verse 17, it's very clear that the Lord intervened. It's almost like God steps in and just says, enough's enough. Abram, if you're not going to protect her, I will. And he sent plagues to Pharaoh and his house. Now, this is important. Again, you know how important the original hearers would have been to us in this. If you're an original hearer of this story, so Moses is writing this story. Uh, they're out of the land of Egypt. The people of Israel have been, you know, taken out of the land of Egypt by Moses. He's writing the story of Genesis. And along the journey, going to the promised land, he's reading the stories to them. They would read this story and they would hear, oh, plagues in Egypt happened to our father of faith, Abram. That's what God just did to deliver us out of Egypt. See, a moment of, God's on our side. God steps in when it's needed. The original hearers would hear this. And when these plagues hit Pharaoh in Abram's time, you'll notice what he does. Pharaoh confronts Abram about all this. Why didn't you say that she's your wife? And he gets all of his guards and says, get them out of here. Pharaoh knew. We're not told how Pharaoh knew. We don't know who dropped the idea in his lap that that Sarai was Abram's wife. We don't know any of that. We just know that he knew. And he knew and then confronts Abram, and he sends Abram out. Now, what you'll notice is he sends him out with all of Pharaoh's wealth. Now, this is another reminder to the original hearers. Because in the book of Exodus, when they're leaving Egypt, The Egyptians want them out so bad, they give them wealth upon wealth upon wealth to get out. Just stop the plagues. We're done with it all. And Abram and Sarai leave Egypt, heading back to Canaan, escaping the dangers of Pharaoh's harem, very wealthy people. Now the famine is no longer a concern to them. Wow. Does this, does this fit in your biblical worldview stuff? So there's some important things we should draw out of this that we just cannot miss. First, it seems that Abram came out of this pretty well, doesn't it? You're like, oh, hey, dude got his wife, got some money. I mean, he's heading back to home with every, I mean, everything you can imagine. What if, I mean, hey, Abram. 
they probably more subtle, like, you know, behind Sarah's back, like, you know, hey, got a baby, right? You'll notice something, too, in the text, God never rebuked him. We're not, we're, we're also told that, and it's, it's in the text, that nothing terrible happened to Sarai. From all indications in the text, while she was a member of Pharaoh's harem for a short time, her purity was kept and he didn't violate her. We know that because if he took her as a wife, it would take almost a full year to get her prepared to go into the bridal chamber with Pharaoh. But that's not the end of this story. Abram does become a man of great wealth. But I want you to notice something. His wealth becomes a constant reminder of what happened in Egypt. Here's a question for you. Can you imagine that with each ride on that female donkey, that Mercedes of the day, that he would think back to the day when this donkey was given to him for his wife. His wealth reminded him regularly of the decision to put his wife at risk. But his wealth also became a significant source of contention between him and his nephew Lot's herdsmen. We're going to read about this later. They begin to bicker over the wealth. They fight over it. Like a family feud over an inheritance. Anybody else ever had that problem, right? As old as Genesis. But there's one particular painful part that I want you to notice. That when Pharaoh gave him all of this wealth, you'll notice this little, it just kind of throws out to us. He was given female servants. Egyptian female servants. And one female servant in particular was named Hagar. And Hagar, as we're going to study about in Genesis chapter 16, she becomes the father of Abram's son Ishmael when Sarai and Abram once again try to take matters into their own hands. And the descendants of Hagar and Ishmael are what you would know in this world as the Muslim people. We're still feeling the effects of Abram deciding one day to take matters into his own hands. Abram's wealth that he attributed from Pharaoh for Sarai becomes a grief to him. Because he failed to consult God on the day of testing because he put himself in a compromised situation. But the other thing I want you to notice here in this story is notice God's faithfulness despite our failure. Remember, it seemed that some of Abram's decisions to go to Egypt and to claim Sarai as his half-sister came out of a desire to protect what God had just told him previous. In other words, Abram took what God had told him so seriously that he felt an obligation to protect it at all costs. Now, to some degree, this is, this is honorable. There's something about being so kingdom-focused and wanting to protect God's word and God's gospel and God's glory. That can be a really good thing when it's in its right place. Friends, I also want to tell you that thinking that we're the protectors of God's word and promises can be misplaced and lead us to a place of misplaced zeal and to get out ahead of God. One particular historical example that some of you would know is in the Great Reformation, there was a man named Martin Luther who was doing remarkable work for the gospel. And Luther was out able to preach freely, publicly, all over the place, and some of Luther's disciples got so upset that certain things were happening with friends around them, they began to burn Catholic churches to say to the Catholic churches, you can't stop the gospel. At that moment, the Pope put a bounty on Mount Martin Luther's head, and he had to go in hiding for three years. Misplaced zeal. Rather than letting the gospel do its work, and believing that God is the protector of his promises. Misplaced zeal can lead us to sin. It can lead us to impatience. It can lead us to get out ahead of God. This story shows us that God, listen, God 
will be faithful to his promises. Even when we aren't, and even when our zeal is misplaced. See, we, we must hold this tension very lightly and deal with it very carefully. The moral of the story is this. The best of men are men at best. Abram is, is still, to this day, the father of faith. You're still going to read more about Abram in the book of Hebrews than you will about Moses. But we cannot faithfully protect. Abram cannot faithfully protect God's covenantal promises. God can and God does. God will ultimately protect his glory, his name, and his promises. God's covenant promise to Abram is called to us the covenant of grace for a reason. For a reason. Because we have failed and we will continue to fail, but only God can be faithful to protect his covenant of grace. See, friends, you're going to read throughout the Bible great stories of great men and women. Joseph. David's one of my favorites. Not because I'm his namesake and that's what I was named after, but because he's an amazing character to me. Abigail. Hannah. Isaiah. The best of humans are humans at best. But God is faithful to his promise. God's faithfulness to his promise. Listen, when you know and understand God is faithful to his promise and you believe it and see it, it will allow you to step back and be faithful to God and not misplace your zeal. Don't miss that in the story. We're going to see as well that Abram continues to struggle with the same problem. We're going to see again Genesis 20. He does the same thing with Abimelech. But we're also going to see in Genesis 22 that when God told him to sacrifice his only son, he believed that God would even raise the dead. A.P. Ross put it like this. The basic point of the story in Genesis is the divine preservation of the the purity of Sarai for the sake of the promise is in an account of God's protecting the future of the covenant. Israel would learn that even when they were unfaithful, there were aspects of the promise that God would not relinquish through their failure. This deliverance in no way condoned the deception. Rather, it embarrassed it. Knowing this story would have been a comfort and an encouragement to the people under Moses. For if God, who made the promise to Abram, delivered Abram from Egypt to return to the land, then God, who confirmed the promises to the descendants of Abram, could surely deliver them as well. Even Abram's bringing the dilemma on himself through deception would also be encouraging, for the people could see that the program of God was too important to let anyone bring it to ruin. Friends, do you see what great news this is? The best of men are men at best, but God is faithful to his promise. Your pastor will fail, but your God will not. Your president will fail, but your God will not. Your heroes will fail, but your God will not. What glorious good news that is. You had a hard week. You had a rough week. You did things you wish you would never have done, but your God is not removed from his throne to accomplish everything he has planned in your life. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because God will never fail. God will never fail. And friends, there's no greater display of this in the covenant of grace than God sending his only son, Jesus, for us. I mean, do you sense this? Our sins should have destroyed God's promises to humans. Our sins should have separated us from him for all of eternity. But they didn't. They didn't. God so loved you. God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because God is faithful to his promise. What glorious news. What glorious news. So Christian, listen. Lift up your heart 
out of the pit. Lift up your face out of the dust and say, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. He is faithful. He is good. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is altogether lovely, and he will never fail his promise. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how often, how often in my heart and soul have I, I thought your work has been squandered by my stupidity. How often have I spent more time navel-gazing than lifting my eyes up to the hills and marveling that my help still comes. (laughs) Father, would you lift up the eyes of your people? Would you, would you, Touch them on the chin and say, dear one, listen, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I haven't dwelt you with the Holy Spirit of promise, and he is the guarantee that I will complete everything I promise to you. That the inheritance that you have given us, Lord, is not even not even something we did. It's something you gave. That you knew of our failure. You knew of our sin and disobedience. And that's why Jesus came. as you're praying this morning just had a sense today that so many of you are tired you're discouraged some of you it's because of expectations that you have that are not happening some of you it's because of hopes and dreams are looking like they're not going to be fulfilled Some of you are worried and anxious about the future, and it's eating at your soul. This morning, I I believe that the Lord just wants to say to you, be of good courage. If the eyes of God are on the sparrow, his eyes are on you. If the lilies of the field have clothing, are you not more precious, God, than those lilies? This morning, I my prayer has just been that God would just pick your head up from looking down and lift your eyes to the protector of the covenant, to the protector of the promise. So the Bible says, we'll do all things according to his glory and for the good of his people. And this week you've battled with your own sin. You've struggled with your own issues. And you've wondered, Does God see me and love me? And the answer to that is, in Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. There's no debate in heaven anymore. No discussion in heaven 
about how God loves you and cares for you. Pick up your eyes and see the ascended Christ. (laughs) Who died for your sins, pierced for your transgressions, rose again from the dead, and is now seated at God's right hand. Where, listen, he is now, right now, interceding for you. Father, help us to see how good you are, how glorious your gospel is. And I pray, I pray that it would, it would, it would put a longing in us to consult you about everything. Forgive us for making decisions and plans that we think are right without it just stopping and saying, God, what do you think? Forgive us for just trusting in our business acumen or our educational intelligence or our athletic prowess or our financial success. Forgive us. A famine is always around the corner, and so are Pharaoh's. So, Father, help us. Help us to consult you, to to come to you. Because you're good. And you do good to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.